Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the BoxCast. This is your host, Ben Boxall, and I'm starting Season 2, The Electric Boogaloo of Seasons. I am recording from, of course, my living room back in Winnipeg. I'm done my trip, so I'm here to record more frequent and higher quality episodes than I could have on the road, and I am making a huge effort to release them in the schedule that I had intended before I left. Uh, So for the next 20 episode season, you will get for sure a very much more frequent release schedule of these episodes, uh, hopefully with higher production quality. You can also stay tuned for more shows on the BoxCast network that I've been planning for the past couple months, things that just I haven't been in town to start, uh, things that I've been talking about pretty much since the beginning of the show, and you will definitely hear more about those in the upcoming weeks, so stay tuned for that. Now today joining me in the studio is Cian Wally. Now he was a solutions architect for MTS before he left it to join a new job, so you can hear all about that. He's going to talk about what he learned while working there, uh, how that helped him start several businesses, and just some more general outlook life tips that he's picked up. So stay tuned for that in this interview. Uh, of course, my name's Ben Boxall. The theme song is "Quick Rest" by Ultra Mega, and this is the Boxcast. Slow up my step And man, just by knowing it I'm further distressed I can't stop for a breath When I'm hot and you're wet So I hear The boss man I try to sign my ailments But he sways And coughs and Says if I could play this game So please Alright, welcome to season 2 Episode 1 of the Boxcast with CN. He's joining me here. And uh, yeah, how, how have you been? Uh, good. You know, just uh, been on holidays last little while. Finally finished Fallout 4. Nice. Was a pretty epic battle. Um, definitely don't want to get into some spoilers for that because I know there's still people out there who haven't uh, played it yet. I don't know if I've played any of the Fallout games, to be honest. Oh, really? Yeah, it's uh, it's really neat. It's uh, about kind of uh, post-apocalyptic uh, United States in a world where, uh, I guess, uh, everyone kind of nuked each other and a uh, bunch of people were convinced to pay a company to build vaults for them before the nukes actually dropped. And Right, so the 2016 election. <laughs> yeah, essentially. Uh, but yeah, so like... You know, the first uh, Fallout 3 and uh, Fallout 4, you kind of emerge from this vault and, you know, like blink your eyes and you walk into this kind of like wasteland and you just look out and you're just, okay, well, what do I do now, you know? And you can literally do anything. So, yeah. What have you been doing? Oh, man. Um, Where to begin? Well, I quit my job. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, I uh, I recently retired from a 15-year career at MTS. Yeah, I started when I was like 12. <laughs> uh, so I, I worked my way up from um, call center to uh, architect in 15 years and uh, learned a lot doing that. Also recently finished my MBA. Oh, congratulations. And all of that kind of culminated to the realization that uh, I needed to kind of change things up a little bit, get out there and and see how the world really worked. You know, when you're in a, a unionized environment like you are at MTS, it's very, very different than the rest of the world. Things are done 
very slowly. There's a lot of sort of checkbox management going on. Their focus is really on the output versus the outcome. So when you're uh, when you're looking at like how people are performing, you're looking at did I do exactly what my boss asked me to versus did we achieve a goal of some sort? And the goal is always you know satisfying the customer or making money or so- something sort of actually tangible like that as opposed to did we deliver a product because you know it's fine to deliver a product but if no one buys it then it kind of sucks right yeah and i mean sometimes that is a goal like back in i guess uh post uh wars days they had like government make work projects where it was just you know we need to get people busy and get them producing things and you know and i guess in that case that's has some value of of sorts but when you're uh, running a private company uh it's not great uh seeing that sort of methodology where people are are managed and focused on just getting the next checkbox especially when you're in an, an industry where the whole landscape's changed in even like the last five years, never mind the last 15, right? You went from running a company which was for over a hundred years essentially protected in, in sort of an, a monopoly or an oligopoly, right? Yeah. And the decision-making process in that kind of environment doesn't need to be very robust, you essentially have to say, well, what are we going to build next year or the year after? And okay, now let's build it. You don't really have to tune what you're building as you build it to the needs and wants of the people because they're going to buy whatever you build, right? And there's no competition. So there's absolutely no chance that they won't buy it unless it actually does not do what it's going to do, whether that's some internet feature or email or telephones or you know the next cell phone but what we've seen over the last say seven years like just since the iphone came out has been a dramatic increase in the complexity of the industry that uh telecommunications companies operate in uh and that complexity has changed as a result of all of the competition like smartphones like the iphone deviated from the norm in that Nokia and Motorola and all these phone manufacturers released basically one feature a year. So from 1995 to say 2005, you'd get one feature a year. You know, one year it was caller ID. The next year it was like T9 texting. And, you know, yeah, yeah. even if they had all these features saved up, like they were just releasing them once a year so that you just keep consumers on that train, on that upgrade train, right? And then the iPhone comes out and it just totally blindsides everyone. And it lays a foundation for something that no one really expected. And that was uh, real competition in the telecommunications industry. Like real competition. Like we're talking WhatsApp, Facebook. Uh, you know, Skype. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I talk to people on my phone, well, number one, I'm not talking, right? Yeah, How often yeah. do you actually talk to someone on the phone? Mostly just my grandparents. Yeah, exactly. 
because they have a landline. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, but it's all it's all text. And now it's not even text, right? It's like Facebook Messenger. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like, Which I is see, free. Yeah. It's free. And, and I can actually call people, and I don't, because, like, who wants to actually have a single conversation at a time <laughs> no that's ridiculous <laughs> or or you know like synchronous conversations like we're having right now where you have to respond in real time and you can't like think about your answer nobody could have predicted that all of that was going to happen but even if they had predicted it i don't think that it would have changed anything because when you've um when you've built your company over the time span of a hundred say 125 years like most telecommunications companies have you get this really ingrained culture and really ingrained management methodologies and most of the managers and most of the people in charge grew up inside the company they haven't come from outside so they haven't been educated in the latest management methodologies uh, if there was no training program internally that brought in outside knowledge it's all just like tribal knowledge right and I mean like that's good to have that uh, but if it's not evolving fast enough with the times um, you're gonna end up uh, having issues right and so if you have management methodologies like say you know you have like a framework like some sort of quadrant framework where you put things in this box with a, a cross in it and you know well this Thing fits into category A, this thing fits into category B, da da da. And we can use this framework to analyze uh, what's going on in the in the market, and then we're gonna predict that people want blah as a result. And then you go and throw $20 million at blah, and because your IT capabilities are a little slow or your um, agility is your decision-making capabilities are slow uh, it takes you two to three years to build blah and by the time you get to year two these days where you've made a prediction two years ago and you say okay that's a good prediction and now go build it and two years later it's delivered exactly as you wanted it two years ago how likely do you think you're going to be successful in today's market? Well, it's either already been done or it's outdated. The market's moved on. Yeah. Right? Like Facebook has an interesting um, quote in their employee handbook. And I'm not going to do it word for word, but you can look it up. It's essentially we have two planning cycles. We have six months and 30 years. So essentially short term and long term. Mm. Because... We do 30 years because you need to know broadly what direction you're going in order to make sure that all of your near-term decisions are sort of marching in that direction. Six months, because anything longer than six months these days is a fantasy. Because by the time you get there, the ground underneath you has shifted so much that all of your analysis and all of your preconceptions will be totally different. So when you have very rigid management structures like project le legacy project management, 
and legacy decision making where you know oh i have to make a decision i'm gonna ask my boss and he's gonna ask his boss and so on and so forth and all decisions go up to one power source or another and then they come down you can't move fast enough to respond to changing conditions and so that's where like when i was making my decision that decision was based off of that kind of perception that the world has changed they've largely moved on but large companies i'm not just saying telcos i'm saying i'm saying large companies who haven't figured out how to be agile they're dinosaurs and i mean they're going to be around for a long time because they have a lot of uh let's say fat they can cut into as they're, you know, on a low calorie diet. Yeah. <laughs> right? um, looking at myself, I was thinking, well, do I want to be in an industry and in, in a type of company that is on an upward trajectory that is doing something new and exciting and, and, you know, maybe even trying to change the world a little bit or, do I want to be in that sort of slow decline, managing for cost and efficiency kind of paradigm? And obviously I came to the decision that I want to be fast and agile and see see like what's actually happening out there in the world. It's interesting because for so many people, that's, you know, the American dream per se, getting a job somewhere at the bottom and like working your way up to a position uh, that is like, you know important and does stuff and then working there and like indefinitely i guess what what made you not want to continue that i mean i guess I, you, you you mostly said it all but like yeah well was... i th i think at, at a broader scope the dream's changing like if you look at the way that people are living their lives these days i mean you and i both know people who don't have your typical American dream job. They have very flexible jobs, online jobs, where they're maybe doing marketing or, you know, uh, coaching or things like that, and have kind of flexibility in their lives that very few people have had historically. And I'm actually starting to notice this more and more. And I mean, Facebook is quite a good uh, research tool for this because lots of these people like to market their own lifestyles, right? That's kind of part of it. That's largely how lots of these coaches make money is marketing their lifestyle and then teaching other people how to do it. There is a, quite a movement of people. I mean, my friend Sky Jones, actually, just uh, he works in Vancouver as a rigger for shows and stuff at the stadium there. And uh, in the winter, there's less work. In the summer, there's too much work. But he was supposed to be moving apartments. And then his roommate was like, well, I'm moving too. And he couldn't hold on to it on his own. So he just decided to get rid of it at the end of this month. So today was the last day, but he's already in like Guatemala. <laughs> and he just decided, well, I'm going to store everything I got. And I'm not going to have an apartment for three months. And I'm just going to go to Guatemala and all over South America and like go to some parties and meet some people that he's uh, he's met over the years and explore the world and, and see what's out there, you know. Totally. Yeah. So 
I think there's a new American dream, if you even want to call it American, (laughs) that's emerging. I would call it the new millennial dream myself. And that is, I don't want to be beholden to a job or a boss. I don't want to be owned by a house or a car. I don't want these things to dictate what I do with my life. I want to have absolute control over what I do and who I do it with. And to me, that is kind of real freedom, right? The American dream was always based on freedom. And I think largely people got there, but then once you get there, well, the definition of freedom changes, right? It's like hot versus cold. You know, if if your hands are warm and you touch a hot pot, it's not going to feel as hot as if your hands are cold and you touch it, right? So freedom to people who were born in freedom means something totally different than freedom to people who lived through, like, world wars, for example. For sure. <laughs> right? So uh, I, think, I think it's just kind of that trajectory and... Uh, the new generation that's coming up is discovering this and, and I'm watching it happen and it's redefining for me what success means, you know, uh, it isn't really money. It isn't really like a nice car, a good job. It's something else. Now for me, it might be, it might not be the same as them, but I definitely know it's not what I've been um, pursuing for 15 years. Okay. So what are you doing now? You got a new job. I got a new job and I have to be cautious how much I talk about the brand I'm working with. But I'm working with a um, very large um, sports franchise uh, who has a dominant online presence. And a few years back realized that the same thing that many large companies realize and this was that IT is kind of in the middle of everything everything you try to do is IT IT is a huge component of it and very few companies actually realize this and then put enough resources or thought behind the management of IT and um, those companies will die or outsource their IT or dramatically transform it. Um, This company decided to outsource it and it's been outsourced to a small agile company, about 30 people here in Winnipeg called Northfield IT. What these 30 people have done in just a couple of years is totally transformational. I mean, they've taken a broken system of where you have your typical like two-week maintenance windows. The old way is is very bad for trying to scale things the way that things like Netflix and Spotify and Facebook do today, right? So those three companies that I mentioned um, have kind of changed the way that IT works fundamentally right down to how project management is done the structure of the teams how people work together and 
how the the systems are architected. This company that I work for has re-architected a lot of the systems for this franchise, and they've transformed their project management methodologies, and they've done a lot of really amazing things as far as breaking apart the technology. So one of the one of the biggest problems with these whole uh, building applications is they generally grow really, really big. Like if you imagine the Facebook app as an application, it must be huge. There's so many things going on there, right? Messaging, news feed, pictures, video, likes, like all of these different things that the site does in the old world would be all bundled into one big monolithic app, right? Except and, messaging, they split that. And well, it's kind of annoying. Okay, so so when I talk about app, I'm talking like no, the, I, ser- I know, the server just, side. But you're, you're right, yeah, yeah. yeah. I actually like that they split it, but we'll, we'll all talk about that Saves later. Saves battery. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, so this big sort of monolithic server side app, like it's unsustainable. If... Uh, we're talking if you have like developers working on like the messaging part and they want to do updates and then developers working on like the images part and they want to do updates it's all got to go into the same sort of application and now sometimes these updates conflict and can cause issues and break things and that's why you would always have those like maintenance windows at night where everyone sort of gets together and like okay is this my piece working is your piece working so what, what these, uh, these other companies, the newer companies have done is they've said, you know what, we're, we're getting away from that. We're going to blow this thing up into pieces. Right. Each component does its own thing. And, and each team who builds that component like works on that and um, knows it from sort of top to bottom. And uh, so if, if they break this component, it doesn't break everything, right? So if, if you broke the like button, for example, if that was the thing that you worked on, the microservice, um, it wouldn't break the video streams. So, you know, very few people would notice that the like button was broken. And if you have your systems instrumented properly when you deploy that broken like button, you'll notice right away. You'll see a whole bunch of errors and, and, and people, you know, some people will see it, but predominantly like it'll be like less than a percent of the customer base especially in facebook's you know yeah yeah so um and there's things you can do to release it to only a portion of your of your base or or whatever but that that's really not important the important part is is that things are getting sort of broken down into smaller components so that they're less likely to break each other and that actually allows you to do something really interesting and that is you get rid of that maintenance window and now you have developers who start to push code right into production throughout the day all day so there's like there's uh automated testing that goes on obviously so developer like builds some code it goes through testing pipeline and goes into production and they know within minutes whether something's broken or not and they can roll it back within a few minutes or they can uh, patch it and make it make it work better and it doesn't go out to everybody either it just goes out to a certain amount yeah yeah yeah, you can decide right and and that allows it, it does two two important things from a management perspective it allows you 
not to be beholden to these very, in, in today's world, long two-week or one-week development cycles. Now you can shorten those development cycles to like a day or a few hours, right? And you can start like getting things out there much, much quicker. And that introduces a neat feature, and this is the second thing, is uh, short, shorter feedback loops. And um, the key to learning new things and forging new paths is having knowledge feedback loops built into whatever it is that you're doing. And, and this, I think, is where a lot of the older, larger companies um, fail is that they haven't achieved a level of ingesting the signals that are coming at them and then sending those signals to the people that need them. Um, they've grown so big that the people who are doing the development are insulated from a lot of that stuff, like customer feedback, complaints, and et cetera. It all hits sort of your, your outer, outer ring, which would be like customer care. And it takes a very, very long time for that feedback to filter through all of the systems to the core, whereas there's like a developer who's actually writing code and, and building something. And in absence of any direct feedback, people will just do what they think is right. But what people think is right isn't always right. Especially when you work in a checkbox management solution company. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and, and yeah, so you're, you're, you're touching on something important there. And that's the, the mentality of the person who's doing what they think is right. If what they think is right is checking all of these requirements that marketing gave them and marketing gathered those requirements like a year ago and it took another year for the guy to check off all of those requirements and then you deliver something like how do you how do you get feedback in that type of system right how do you shorten those loops and, and actually uh, do experiments because when you're building when you're forging new paths when you're on the cutting edge of technology or or society there there's no book you can go to read to tell you what to do all you can do is experiment and if your experiments don't have results they're useless right or if your result your feedback loops are two years long <laughs> Good luck and good luck iterating, right? Like, For sure, yeah. So, so like these 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 new types of companies, it's it's less about like changing how you manage people or like you know, like sort of like academic theory like that, and more about understanding what value is and pursuing it, and. Value is really achieved by understanding what people value, and you can only do that by asking them. So you've you started a couple projects while you were working for MTS. Hmm. Uh, what what uh, what have you done? Well, um, what one can I talk about the most? No, that one's under NDA. <laughs> uh, I just assume most of our conversations are NDA. Well, yeah, but we're recording now, so yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, well, I I can talk a, a little bit about um, I'll talk about some of the projects I'm I'm involved in, maybe not necessarily the ones that I've started myself, because those go back a while. Maybe I'll get to one of those, but so so one of one of the um, ones I've done in the last two years is actually with my brother. So uh, his name's Kazil, and he just started a. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, an oil technology company. 
And this this is the one I'm under NDA for, so I, ca I can't really talk about the technology much, but I can talk about the problems in the industry. Oil pipelines have a lot of negative press these days, right? And the reason is that there are um, a lot of problems with maintaining these pipelines. Uh, there's like leaks all over the place. Um, ways of detecting those leaks are very weak. Most, <laughs> most of the leaks that have been detected uh, in the last like few months even in Alberta have been due to a guy in a truck driving down the pipeline visually inspecting. Now how, how accurate and how fast is that? How much, how much oil do you think comes out of those things when they burst? Like these things are under pressure, you know, there's a spewing oil and chemicals like all over the place. And a lot of these pipelines are like 50 years old. So not very, not very efficient. Well, yeah, like they're, they're, they're just, they're aging and there's very little ability for them to detect these leaks very quickly or even pre-detect, to de detect them before they actually happen. Um, so that's one of the problems my brother's company is working on is actually um, they have some technology that's going to revolutionize um, how those leaks are detected. And that's about all I can say about that <laughs> one. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I've, I've invested with that and I'm helping them with some of the technology um, guidance and mentorship. Uh, another company uh, that is quickly up and coming, my uh, buddy Adams, working on something called vertical farming. It's very, very interesting stuff. And... Um, while I'm not under NDA, I'll not talk about it too, too much. But essentially what they're doing is they're, uh, they, can, they have a technology that they can actually rent a warehouse even in the city and start growing organic produce at scale, high density, for a fraction of the cost that it takes to get organic produce um, shipped in from anywhere that it comes. And so they're exploring different um, business models there and developing the technology that they need to actually do that. Uh, I believe they are uh, at the precipice of something huge that could transform how we eat. And they already have commitments from huge, huge distribution companies for taking basically as much as they can supply. So, I mean, this kind of thing could scale up like really really fast almost infinitely like not quite but like yeah well i mean it depends how you do it right do you franchise do you build it yourself and hold on to the technology and hope no one else does it or like i don't know there's there's a lot of different ways to approach that problem but it requires some thought okay, okay. so so what's your what's your six month and 30 year plan my six month and 30 year plan well uh so Professionally, I guess, over the next six months, I have a big job to do. Um, the reason I was brought into this small company was because of my uh, background in high availability engineering and architecture. Uh, my, my most recent project was um, working on a fiber optic 911 network oh. that transports 911 phone calls. And uh, you can imagine how rock solid that needs to be 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of things that you learn when you're um, pursuing a, uh, an objective like that that can be transposed into other industries. So um, this other industry that I'm in now, they want to increase the availability of their uh, web properties. And everyone has outages. Um, telcos have outages. Uh, data centers have outages. Hardware has outages. And there are things that you can do to um, mitigate the impact of those outages. For example, having two data centers, right? Uh, if one goes down, the other one takes over automatically, as long as they're active-active, right? Uh, which means they're both running at the same time as opposed to a, a cold site and a hot site. Right, right. Yeah. So actually, it's the next three months is uh, is laying the foundation for the next two years of, of development in achieving that high avail availability goal. So 30 years. In 30 years, I would be your typical retirement age. So I'd imagine I would have been retired for at least 15 and and by retired I mean moved transitioned into the next uh, uh, the next sort of line of work right I'm never really gonna retire and sail I, off into when, the when sunset you, yeah when you when you said that I'm like that doesn't that doesn't seem like seeing yeah but I wonder where he's going with that yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense well if you go by my definition of retirement I've already retired twice okay I retired the first time I left MTS and started mm -hmm. my own company and ran that for about six years, sold it, got into real estate, got back into MTS so I could get mortgages and stuff like that. And then more recently, retired again and transitioned into another industry. There we go. Um, but I mean, that's a very loose definition of retirement. <laughs> what uh, did you run for six years? What was that? Okay, so that, well, that was my, I, I guess I would say that would be my first company. It was a company called Vertical Financial Group. Okay. And uh, started it when I was 21 with a couple other guys uh, while working at MTS. Uh, essentially what it was, it was, um, I'd say a precursor to high frequency trading. We started doing algorithmic trading. Okay. And um, so if you know how uh, technical traders work, they have a bunch of charts and they have a bunch of stocks that they look at every day and they make recommendations based off of their knowledge of the charts and how, how all of the graphs work. We had a guy who had done that before and synthesized that knowledge into a set of rules and I transformed that knowledge into programs. The computer would look at say 3,000 stocks every minute and make recommendations on how to trade them. Whereas a trader can only do, you know, effectively five to ten stocks and they like get to know them really well which is why trading companies have a whole fleet of traders and each of them just has their own little sector that they look at um so we we just automated a lot of that and packaged it up into a product and sold it and okay. and it was it was one of those it was actually software as a service before there was such a thing <laughs> So, you know, we uh, we went to all these investors' conferences, 
um, with a gentleman named Darren Weeks, Fast Track to Cash Flow conferences, and we were the guys at the back with the booth. Okay. And while everyone was kind of learning about real estate, um, which is what the conferences were about, uh, we were sitting back there, and during breaks, people would come up to us and talk to us about our investment opportunity. And the investment opportunity was you investing in yourself. So our tagline was, be your own hero. Don't trust us to like invest your money. Give us money. We'll give you software, tools, and training that will enable you to invest your own money. Everyone else was like, just give us like $50,000 and we'll invest in this crazy scheme and you might get your money back or you might get rich or you might lose it. Whereas we were like, we're not giving you your money back. Give us $8,000 and uh, we'll train you over three months and we'll give you continuous training for, for as long as you keep the $100 subscription, $100 a month subscription. And you'll get live data feeds uh, state-of-the-art technical charts and uh, automated analysis that um, will grossly, grossly optimize your ability to analyze stocks. Now, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a magic bullet, right? Like you still had to like learn how you you had to learn the techniques. Yeah, of course. To understand course. it, right? Uh, this, the, the software can only do so much, but what the software does is it optimizes the mechanical part of technical analysis so that you don't have to do that. And then you can do the more artistic parts of understanding the company and and reading the news about it and knowing the cycles and things like that, whereas the software would look at all of the hard numbers and the charts and the increases and the, how, how much, you know, the the stock is accelerating or decelerating and yeah so okay, okay so we we uh while i was working at mts the first few years like every weekend it was fly to another city and promote this and you know i was like 21 at the time and i was like as geeky as you could get right talking to a room of people was just Totally not my wheelhouse. <laughs> you, never mind being in a room with 400 people and ha- having them all want to talk to me. <laughs> like that was just, uh, I didn't know how to handle it. I, I did it, but I, I think I did it badly. Um, I had a lot of good mentors there though. Um, even like people who worked for me. I remember we had this one uh, sales guy, Denny Hamel. He was just amazing. Like he could sell snow to uh, Eskimos, like, and I'm not even <laughs> joking. Sometimes you go a little far in that in that end, and you have to process some returns from people who felt like they were sold. But you know, we we always honored that, right? Like, of course, yeah. If you don't go through the training, I mean, we're not going to force you to like keep your money. That's fine. Um, he didn't have a lot of those, but obviously, being the performer, he is. He did have some. Anyways, one one month, like, we paid this guy eighty thousand dollars in commissions, in one month. <laughs> and, oh. and and you know, my partners looked at that negatively. We gotta totally change the commission structure. This is crazy. We can't be paying people this much and blah 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 blah. And I was like, guys, like, calm down. 
do you know how much money we made? <laughs> like, like, if, we're pay, if we're cutting an $80,000 check in a month, are you guys crazy? Uh, and, and uh, but, you know, being, I think I was 22 at the time, nobody really listened to me and they f***ed with the uh, commission structure and the guy walked, of course. He took his 80 grand and started his own thing. Of course, yeah. Duh. Yeah. Right? What would you do? Well. You know, what, uh, yeah, what, you're going to change the deal on me now? Come on. <laughs> like, I worked hard for that money. 80,000. Uh, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, so around 2004, that, that job got so busy i that's when i quit mts the first time okay. or retired <laughs> whatever you want to <laughs> and uh, yeah yeah because it was just it was just nutty i i ha- hired st- i had staff you know and and i still couldn't keep up the whole like evenings and weekends and working full-time at mts and it was just like it was starting to like get to the point where it would be creeping into my mts day and i know a lot of people do that sort of thing but it didn't feel right to me to like yeah. to do that so i just i pulled the trigger and i got out and that was a whirlwind whirlwind few years out in the out in the wild you know building and running a company and and then ultimately like merging with another and then selling um it was fun but you know it's funny because uh, the whole time and right near the end i started started thinking this like we were at these investors conferences right and everyone's talking about real estate everyone like so so right from 2001 yeah you know i'm i 21 years old i'm exposed to the stock market and then i'm exposed to real estate like right away and the whole time i was watching this real estate stuff go on i was getting this feeling like Man, I'm running my own business, but I feel like I should be investing in real estate. Being so young, I didn't have the capital then to do so, but I definitely in 04 bought my first house, and that was the one that I lived in. And I'd have to say that was one of the best investments I ever made. Uh, I bought it in 2004 for 130000 and in 08, no, I sold it in 2011 for 220. Wow. I've, I've since then owned another five properties. Uh, Since 2011? No, uh, I started getting into actual real estate in 2007, 2008. So I got back to MTS in 08. Um, in 07, yeah. 07, I made the decision that, and this is like when the company is starting to merge and Just for the record, we're starting to transition. I was starting grade five. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember grade five, man. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, 2007, we we started merging companies and with the intention to sell. And uh, I wanted to get my capital out. I wanted to get into real estate. I didn't really have a plan, but I knew I needed to get out of this like grind, right? Um, so I could get some perspective on things. Anyways, so sold the company and pussed around for about a year on the board of the the new company while I figured out how I was going to get into this real estate thing. What became very, very clear to me very, very quickly was I needed a job because it doesn't really matter how much money you have. A bank's not going to give you a mortgage unless you have a job. It's just the way they're set up. Now, now I know there's other ways to do it. 
joint ventures and and things like that but at the time i was just like nope this was the easiest way and plus i'd stop eating into my capital Mm -hmm. (laughs) so uh I called up a few old uh, directors from MTS and I was like, hey, you have any positions? And no bites initially, but eventually somebody called me, a, a director I didn't even know. And I was like, hey, can you start on Monday? I was like, okay. There's <laughs> 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 like no interview or anything, just like come and work for us. I guess they were in a pinch. And so I, I came back then and within, I'd say a year, I had added three properties to my portfolio. Wow. So. Wow. And back then, you could buy properties with 5% down. So it yeah, was pretty yeah. easy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so what, what did you want to do uh, when you were, you know, between 15 and 20? What was your vision of the future? Oh, boy. So, yeah, 15. Let's, uh, I'll think about when I came out of the darkness and actually started thinking about my future as opposed to how crappy the present was. Uh, so I had always been good at computers and for that reason, like I've been programming since I was eight. Right. Right. Um, for that reason, I was like, well, I don't want to do that as my job (laughs) because, you know, a, it's felt like it'd be too easy and, and B computers were a real hobby for me. Like I just loved tinkering and messing around with them. So I decided, well, I should be a doctor. <laughs> like, a, like a medical doctor? Yeah, a medical doctor. You know, and I was really good in, in school, so it didn't seem like that far-fetched of an idea, though. You know, I didn't have any clue how I'd pay for the school because, you know, we were poor. But I took the first two years at uh, U of W um, doing a biochemistry degree, and I got A's. But I was bored to tears like organic chemistry just just killed me inside in grade oh i must have been in grade 10 i was taking chemistry i was taking 11 chemistry Hmm. and i was away for the one day that we learned organic chemistry so because i had a graphing calculator i programmed all of the notes into my calculator (laughs) that was fun Oh, man, you remind me. (laughs) So in high school, this is grade 10. I was in Vancouver at the time. Sorry, Surrey, near Vancouver. Graphing calculators had come out. I was, oh, yeah, they came out when I was in school. You know, they weren't a thing. They had just come out. And they, uh, having programmed since eight, like basic was one of my favorite languages at the time. Okay. And all of the calculators ran basic. Oh yeah. So yeah. I um I created a meme actually, now that I think about it. <laughs> I created this little um a couple little games that just did stupid things, but there was this one that pretty much everyone put on their friend's calculator because I made it so you could you could like send it over infrared oh wow yeah and uh almost like a virus anyway so if you ran it it would just start beeping and doing like weird like not (laughs) tunes but just like weird sounds and stuff and they used it to people just used it to annoy other people and the teachers are all like who made this like (laughs) trying on this witch hunt yeah yeah i also i also uh figured out how to write 
a program that that found the uh, basically did the quadratic equation, but manually. Yeah. We didn't know the quadratic equation back then. We know we knew how to like find the roots. Yeah. Of of uh, an equation, but uh, that was my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, that's that's going way back. Yeah. When I was in high school, nobody had phones. Like. What, what was, was were pagers a thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I had a pager. Solid. Um, not for what you're thinking. <laughs> what what uh, am I thinking? Yeah. I, no, I wasn't a drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even thinking that. Yeah, that those were pretty much the only people who had pagers. Um, <laughs> I oh. think I had one. Why did I have it? Uh, I don't even remember why I had it. No, I didn't have it in high school. I had it after high school. Okay. Okay. So, and there weren't like a lot of cell phones around in the you know 97 98 sort of time frame so i wasn't even around until 97 <laughs> <laughs> i love this i love making people feel old on my podcast yeah there was no there was no google either man how like how would you find out things like uh, uh, i don't know yeah we had encyclopedias to be honest though i never used one but that's fair they were there to be fair, I still had dial-up as a kid. I'm not that young. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I remember tr- finding ways of getting dial-up internet for free in, like, 94 or 95. Because, <laughs> like, internet was just ridiculously expensive and, you know, yeah. we didn't have any money. So, had to find ways of getting that's, around that. That's smart. That's smart. <laughs> so what's uh, what's happening next? What like what are your visions for the future? What are you? Oh, like thirty years out. Yeah. Did do. Yeah, well, I, I said retire, retire but, but like, but I didn't talk about what I was gonna do. Do you have anything in mind? Yeah. So, um, I I quite enjoy being on the boards of companies, and so I, I do a lot of volunteer board work these days. Because when you're in your 50s and late 40s, um, if you want to get paid to be on boards, you got to have some experience in doing so. And um, so I'm getting that experience now. And, you know, like when you're volunteering, you're allowed to make mistakes. Yeah. yeah. And I'm a, I'm a strong believer in, um, in safe to fail, in learning from failure, you know, and learning from um, making mistakes. Uh, it's truly the only way you learn anything. I totally agree. You know, like it, it go, that goes right back to this this transformation in how companies operate, right? Like, why do you want to do all these iterations really, really quickly? Because you want to find out if you're going to fail or succeed really, really quickly. For sure. And, and to do that, you can't be afraid of failure. You cannot succeed without failure or a tremendous amount of luck. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And are you gonna like, like a are lot you... of people like to roll the dice and play the lottery and stuff like that. Um, that excites them. That stuff's never. It's not a. It's not a way to invest in your future. No. No. There, there's calculated risks, and then there's overcalculated risks. Right. And there's, you know, what's the one thing that's the most fault tolerant is is you. Right. Your brain is a learning machine. Yeah. It is an optimization engine. It is going to automatically figure out how to improve your situation. The problem is it needs information. It needs input. And if you're not doing anything new, 
if you're not trying anything you haven't tried before, you're not getting any signals as far as how you could be doing things better or worse, right? Like if you always do the same thing you've always done, there's no new input, there's no new information telling you how to improve. So you're always gonna stay at that level. If you try something different, it might go down, you know, things might get worse, but you'll notice and then you'll stop doing that. <laughs> right? Yeah. And but if, if you try something different and it goes up, you'll also notice and you'll keep doing that. And then you've like set your baseline a little bit higher, right? Yeah. That's business, right? That's that's entrepreneurship. That's the mentality you need to be successful in the world is understanding that your first product's gonna suck. But if you are committed to it and you listen to the signals that are coming back to you and you tweak what you're doing based on those signals, it doesn't matter what you're doing. That You have to operate in that way to be successful. And that's why they say, you know, you only fail if you quit. It's true. If you quit listening, if you quit doing, you'll fail. But as long as you keep trying like even this podcast right mm -hmm. every time you've done it you've gotten a little bit better god the first three episodes were so bad right like, but you can't be afraid to do it because you you might make a shitty product no right well i'm on episode 21 right now <laughs> yeah and i i mean I, I don't know if it's i don't know what the rate of improvement is but there is a rate of improvement and uh -huh. that you know i learned how to use all of this equipment and I learned how to set it up properly and I learned how to not uh, not pause every five minutes, look at a page of notes and then uh, look back. Hmm. Uh, and you know, it's all about improvement. And it's, I guess the important thing is to, instead of looking at what someone else has done and trying to replicate that, to look ahead and try something and take the risks for it. Yeah, that, that way of operating is... An anti-fragile way of operating yeah i don't know if um you've talked about anti-fragility principles on this podcast before but i don't um, think so <clears throat> a lot of people think the opposite of fragile is robust yeah so if you if you ask someone what's the opposite i should have done that before i said but if you ask <laughs> someone what's the opposite of fragile they'll say strong or robust or something like that but if you actually think about the characteristics of fragile and robust and you compare them, you'll notice something interesting. Something that's fragile under stress will break. Something that's robust under stress will bend. It won't break. It'll it'll like or it'll remain tensile. Mm. Now is remaining tensile or not is not breaking the opposite? No, it would be something that strengthens. Kind of in the middle, right? Yeah. 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 Some, so something that gets stronger under stress, now that would be the opposite. And like, they're calling that anti-fragile. Like non-Newtonian fluids. Yeah. Or, or even to make it even simpler, um, this is actually, so I'm writing a book called Brain Hacker. Um, might change the title. But uh, one of the chapters is the anti-fragility principle and how it helped me uh, build muscles. If you think about... Why do people go to the gym, right? They want to get muscles. Mm. Why does going to the gym build muscles? Well, your body is an anti-fragile system. So under stress, 
i.e. lifting weights or, or what push-ups or whatever, you're breaking apart muscle fibers, but not like the whole muscle, but like individual components mm-hmm. of the muscle are getting broken. And as a result, they grow. Yeah. Right? So your body, your brain is anti-fragile automatically. The way that you're acting as far as taking risks, doing experiments, and gaining information from those experiments, and then trying new things and like being flexible and fluid like that, that's an anti-fragile way of acting. So if you, like you said, if you were to just take what someone else did, the model that somebody else built, Mm -hmm. and just like memorize that model and apply it blindly, you could be successful. Maybe it's a proven model, right? This is a franchise Mm -hmm. idea, right? And lots of people like doing this. But when something goes wrong or the environment changes and you don't have all the knowledge behind how that model came about, what are all the decisions that got to why you should be doing X, Y, and Z? You just know do X, Y, and Z. You don't know how they got to that. You're fragile. Your business is fragile if you've just taken a template that somebody else has developed and and apply it. But if you set yourself a goal and you have this mentality of experiment, fail, pivot, experiment, fail, pivot, experiment, fail, pivot, experiment, succeed. If, if you, in everything that you do, follow that kind of uh, methodology, you're building for yourself meta skills that allow you to learn anything for one and also allow you to be totally flexible in chain in a changing environment and changing conditions and i mean that's going right back to the first topic telcos right yeah they're they're not willing to to do an experiment these big companies they want to de-risk everything before they put any money towards anything so because they're incapable of getting information back as far as whether they've succeeded or failed, you know, why would you do an experiment? So they become rigid and, and they have this like template and they're following it, but it's failing. And now they don't know what to do because they don't have those, those meta skills. So, uh, you said, uh, you were writing a book. Hmm. What is that about? So, um, it's tentatively called brain hacker. No, I haven't done like a copyright search or anything. It'll probably transform a number of times as I talk with people about it. But it's it's about those kind of meta skills that I've developed and and observed over the nat- last 15 years. Experiments and failing and the anti-fragility principle. Um, what one interesting uh, chapter is on... Um, it's kind of on communications protocol. Okay. And how, I guess you would say, why do you never get to say anything in meetings? It would be sort of the subtitle on that <laughs> chapter. Uh, and and it, it starts out looking at how computers and cell phones communicate. Well, let me paint a picture for you here for a second. So the way a cell phone tower works is kind of like the way a lighthouse works. It's It's got a beacon and it's blinking a bunch and... All of the cell phones in the area are blinking back at it. The problem is because it's just light, like radio frequencies are just light, nobody can really blink at the same time. 
because then the tower or the phone would get confused as far as who it's talking with. So if two, like say the tower and your phone started blinking at the same time, they would detect that and they'd both like stop blinking for a random number of microseconds and then start again. And the chances of them both starting at the same time again is very, very slim. Mm -hmm. So now we call this the polite conversationalist protocol. That's not actually what it's called, but that's effectively what it is. So if you think about a polite conversationalist, most people, if two people start talking at the same time, will stop and either say you go first or you go first or or just one of them will start talking and it's less likely that they both start talking at the same time though i've seen it it's comical <laughs> when they're like oh are you, are you, you you know that that <laughs> yeah, sort of thing yeah, totally. right uh so that's most people they yeah. have that protocol built in not even aware that they do it it's just it's automatic Right. This is what your brain has learned is is the way that you communicate with people. And maybe that's just in our culture. Right. I, I haven't had a lot of non-English conversations, so I can't really speak to what it's like in other languages. But there is a subset of people who don't respect these protocols. And again, they're not aware. Um, it's just the way that they operate. And I have theories about why they operate this way, but... Um, if you've ever been in uh, a large corporate meeting, you'll notice very quickly that one or two, maybe three, depending on the size of the meeting, people do most of the talking. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now, why is that? It's because of this effect, this sort of uh, polite conversationalist protocol. When one of these people is talking or starts talking at the same time that you're talking, you will naturally back off, wait around a number of seconds and start talking again, whereas they ha- go in the opposite direction. And they actually will raise their voice. So if, if two people start talking at the same time, they'll raise their voice. And, and it's an automatic signal to your brain to tell you to stop talking. And then they just keep talking. Like politicians do this, architects do this, managers do this. Anyone who talks a lot in meetings does this thing. And again, they're not doing it to be dicks it's just the way that they operate and most people don't aren't even aware that this is going on all they're aware of is i don't get to talk a lot at meetings i wasn't like that but i can be like that now because i've observed it and i've contemplated it and i can use it okay so it's, it's an acquired skill instead of uh for me it's an acquired skill for lots of people it's automatic Okay. It just ter- depends on personality. How alpha are you? How comfortable are you with talking? Um, a, a number of factors. And I'm sure some people have acquired acquired it, whether consciously or unconsciously, because like we can learn things in different ways, right? Of course. You get if if you if you experiment with talking and people like it or you get promoted because you talk a lot, then you're going to keep doing that. It's positive reinforcement, right? Mm-hmm. And and I have to say it is a very effective way of moving yourself forward is by being the one who's talking. There's lots of different things that you can do to achieve the result. 
Um, this is just something I've observed. So there's a there's a chapter on that. Okay. And so the whole theme of the book is going to be things like that, where they're just things that you don't normally think about every day that you can use to achieve your goals and optimize your outcomes. So that's how long has that been in the works for? Mm, two and a half months. It's not bad. Yeah. So I've I've really just. I just got like a one note set up where I'm um, I'm just putting random notes that as I think about things, musings. I left know. the city and you had to figure out what you were going to do with all that time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, Ben's gone. I don't know what the hell to do with myself. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, do you have websites, social media that you'd want people to follow you on? Uh, you just hit me up, uh, Ian, Ian with a C. Yeah, C I A N. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On any social media, I'm on all of them. Um, <laughs> or you know, cn.ca. It's kind of a stale blog, but after I uh, get the book going, I might um, might start ramping that up again. Okay. So. Yeah, yeah. So for for news of Cian's book, definitely uh, definitely follow him on whatever social media people use. I don't know. What's big right now? I guess Facebook is still a Facebook monolith. and LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn. I should probably. Yeah. I can't change my name on See, LinkedIn, and it still says Benja. I'll just get a new account. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so here, here's the thing: Facebook's for people you know. Yeah. Twitter's for people you don't know. Yeah. And LinkedIn's for professional relationships. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, well, thanks for inviting me. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. It was fun. Awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boxcast. Sian, thank you so much for coming in and recording with me. That was Sian Wally. You can find him on his website, cian.ca. That's C-I-A-N.ca. You can also find him on the social media that I've linked in the description, as well as myself. If you want to follow either of us, please do. You can follow me for more updates on what the Boxcast will be doing in the future, the new shows, all of that kind of stuff. So without further ado, my name's Ben Boxall. This was CN Wally, and this is season two of the Boxcast, the electric boogaloo season. Let me check my calendar before I forget. Where these four seasons went while I smoked a cigarette Set me up with challenges, let's force an effect If I don't come correct, you could put me in check Can I play?